Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 222. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. The Planet Microcap Showcase is upon us. We're approximately three weeks away, and we're very excited to be back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other, time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Matthew Cochran, lead advisor at Seven Investing. I have been following Matthew for a while now, and I invited him on to get to know him better, as well as his investing philosophy. We chatted about how he got his start investing, how his strategy evolved over time, and how his full-time job has influenced his due diligence process. In proper true crime form, the clue is in the title. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 222 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Matthew Cochran. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is someone who I've been following for a while. I've heard it, not only his podcast, but also he's been a guest on a number of shows as well. And I'm really excited he took the time to do this with me today. We got Matthew Cochran. He is the lead advisor for Seven Investing. Matthew, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Robert. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to have you on. So uh, this is our first time meeting and, and having a chance to talk together. So I'd love to start off with where your passion uh, for investing began. Yeah, sure. So actually, like uh, I kind of got investing into investing uh, later uh, in life, at least later than a lot of people. Um, like uh, out of high school, I, I joined the Navy and like growing up, uh, my family was lower middle class. I mean, I had two loving parents came from a great home. I had a great home life. I don't have any traumatic stories or anything like that to tell. Um, but like money was, we didn't really discuss it and money was meant to be spent. Um, you know, like growing up, we spent, we lived paycheck to paycheck. And I just kind of thought that's how the world worked unless you were rich. And, uh, you know, and that there was no, you know, investing was something rich people did, you know, and it wasn't something that like regular people did. Um, I went in the Navy and coming out of the Navy, I married my high school sweetheart. And when I got married, um, like, I don't, I don't think I could have really written a check. Like, I remember like vividly, like having conversations, like, all right, like, where do I sign it? And how do I fill it out? Like, I just didn't know anything about money. I came from a very, very low knowledge base. And, um, but like, uh, fortunately my wife knew a little and she's like, well, we have to, the budget and things like that. And I was like, I, I don't really know what that is. So, um, I started reading Dave Ramsey, you know, uh, like as a, you know, I was about 25 years old at this point. And, uh, and, and we were a young couple and, uh, and, and Ramsey, you, you know, look, I, I don't like really necessarily like follow him now or a huge fan, but when you come from a low knowledge base and you have, you're coming from like that, if that's your starting point, it's actually a pretty good, uh, like just for those basics of, don't go into debt and learn how to budget. And when you, you set aside some, you know, some money for, for short-term emergencies and things like that, J just like that, that helped immensely. Don't worry. You don't have to defend that. You listed Dave Ramsey as a star. You know what? It helped you get where you are today. So right. Well, it's, well it's all I, good. Think, I think there's better starting places today. What? However, when you come, sure. when, you, when you're coming from where I came from, it was like, uh, it was a big help. It, it was Absolutely. a big help. And so, um, um, and, and that got us a ground knowledge. And I actually started to, to get into investing a, a little bit, but I would just buy, I bought a couple of random books. We didn't have much money. And I mean, I was just like, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd hear a stock on CNBC and be like, oh, I should buy that. And this is like the time of like $10 commission fees. And uh, I would put like $150 into a stock or, I mean, just really ridiculous, stupid stuff. And if the stock didn't go up for a month, I would just, I would sell it because I'm like, oh, it's not doing anything. I didn't really have a 
any kind of coherent philosophy or like strategy or even like thinking long-term or short-term. I, I just knew nothing. Um, and then my wife left the workforce. We started having kids and we just didn't, we, uh, you know, the, the few investments we had, we sold for a down payment for a house. And, and like, I didn't think about investing for, for several years, but then several years, several years went by and my wife was reentering the workforce and we had learned to, to live on my paycheck at, at that time. And, uh, and I knew we should do something smart with our money. I, I didn't really know what, but I knew like, okay, like, I, like somewhere in the back of my head, like, uh, you know, I was remembering like the Dave Ramsey books and such. And I was like, okay, we're, we're living on my salary and we shouldn't just like increase our, shouldn't, this should not all go towards lifestyle inflation as, as she entered the workforce. Um, and so, uh, and so I was on, a, I was on the midnight shift actually. And uh, at the time, and it was like, it was like 2 a.m. And I was like surfing the, the web and I saw this like very clickbaity ad that said 3D printing is the next industrial revolution. And I was like, and I watched this like 30 minute video and I subscribed to a service afterward. And I was just like totally like captivated by 3D printing. I, I bought books on 3D printing. I bought a book called 3D printing for dummies. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and like, the, I mean, I was convinced like this was like going to be like this huge, huge, big thing. I, I, like, I forget if it was in the book or in the video, but, but at some point, like I, I, it was like described, like in the future, when you move across the country, you're not going to get a moving truck and load all your furniture onto it and, and ship it across the country. You're just going to scan your furniture in. And when you get to your new house, you're going to like print it out again. And so if there's a scratch on the dining room table, you can, you can print it out without that scratch on it. Or if you want the scratch, you can scan the scratch in. And I just thought like, well, this sounds so much better. Like why, why wouldn't this work? And um, this was 2013, 2014. And, uh, and, and so the, the little money we had in savings, I put it all in some 3d printing stocks, right? Just like all of it. And I forget exactly how long, but it was a short period of time. I thought I was a genius because I mean, these stocks were going parabolic at the time. They, they were going straight up. And I'm like, this is, I got in at the right time. I got in at the next industrial revolution. How can this miss? And then like, if, if you know your, 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 your history, I mean, this was like a, one of those like mini bubbles in the market, like maybe like, uh, uh, like, like some asset classes you can look at now and say like, those stocks are, or, or these assets are, were in a bubble you know, for the, last year. For those now watching the YouTube video, I'm like smirking because I remember the, the three, like when everybody, oh, new 3D yeah. printing government. Oh, it was huge. Was, it yeah. was huge. It was totally like this big thing. And I was totally caught up in it. Yeah. And um, but within six months, let's say, like it, it just totally popped, right? The bubble just totally popped, uh, deflated. And, um, and I went from like making a lot of money to back to where I started. To losing a lot of money. Now, when I say a lot of money, relatively speaking, right? And, and like, thank goodness, like I was making this mistake at the beginning because, like, uh, because as a percentage of my portfolio, uh, it was a lot of money. Um, but in real terms, it wasn't. But as this money was going down, I, again, I, I started realizing I liked investing. But I also realized, like, if I lose all our money, my wife's not going to let me invest. So I better figure out what I'm doing wrong. And uh, and so it caused me to like, just start researching and like, okay, what am I doing wrong? And then I realized like, okay, like 3D printing, you know, the, these valuations, like even after they had come down an awful lot are like 150 times earnings and maybe, maybe they're overvalued. And, uh, and maybe 
they're not going to be, you know, uh, the, the next industrial revolution. And maybe you won't scan in your furniture and print them out when you move and, and things like that. Um, you know, and maybe there's some niche um, industrial use cases for it, but, but that might be it. And so, um, so I sold those stocks and then I, I went through like a quick uh, learning curve. Like I, I went to like, uh, you know, like, oh, I should buy stocks with high dividend yields. So I just do like a, <laughs> a quick screen for the stocks with the highest dividend yields. And I'm like, oh, like a 12% dividend yield. This, this is great. I just, I just need the stock price to stay the same. That's all I need. And like, I'll make 12% a year. And then it went from that to like the stocks with the lowest PE ratios and things like that. And, 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 you know, within a year, I I kind of cycled through all those ideas and, uh, and just come back to like, uh, started like on, on my journey to like realizing like just by like at the time it was a simple thought, but it was kind of like just by, um, the best companies, uh, for, for, for a long time frame. And, and, and from there, I'd say like, maybe like, if you really wanted to boil my, my philosophy down to like two points, it would be like buy stocks with wide economic moats that are sustainable, um, and, and, and hold them for, for a long time. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor quarter with quarter. You get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. Got it. So by the way, thank you for that that full background. I love it because I mean, at the end of the day, that's, you know, you're hooked when you love it, despite your portfolio underperforming, right? (laughs) Probably, probably. And I was like, I mean, I mean, you know, look, I mean, I was a huge sports fan. I was into like, you know, when I first got married, I probably in like 20 fantasy sports leagues, like from, from football to basketball to like NASCAR and golf, which, you know, I mean, I was just into anything. And, um, and, and now it's like, while I still enjoy sports, it's, it's much, it's, uh, you know, investing is kind of like replaced my passion for, for all those things. Got it. All right. So then catch me up, you know, you're, you're hooked, you're in it, you've gone through, you know, you've, gone to the university of investing uh, for a little bit and paid your tuitions, you know, what then led to your joining uh, as the lead advisor for seven investing. And maybe for those who, who don't, who aren't aware of seven is sorry, seven investing. Can you tell us a little bit about the platform? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, uh, Simon Erickson, uh, founded seven investing. Um, you know, I, I knew him from, from the Motley Fool. We were both uh, contributors there. He was an analyst. He he headed one of their services. Um, you know, I, I was a contributor to to several of their services and and wrote some articles on on their public facing side. And uh, and he said he was starting a new service and uh, and said, look, like I, I want like a, a fairly straightforward service, one that's like uh, you know one one pricing tier. Um, you know, not not one maybe necessarily with like twenty different portfolios and, and things like that. Um, he wanted something with just a, a simple pricing tier and just something where we could release uh, recommendations every month on our, what we bought, believed was a great long-term opportunity in the stock market. And, uh, you know, I, I like that. He wanted to do it with straightforward marketing, you know, nothing like how, you know, like I explained how I got caught up in like that, that 
3D printing ad uh, from a service. You know, we won't, we don't want to do anything like that. We would just want it to be straightforward marketing, like for people like looking, uh, uh, looking, looking to do something with their money and, and just provide them with a, you know, a, a, a channel to, to do that. Got it. So as part of your, your bio that, that you have up on seven investing, you know, it, it's actually not even your full-time gig. It's your, it, it's by night you're writing for them as this lead advisor. And then by day you're a detective with the local police department. So, you know, I had to, I wanted to ask you about this specifically because I think most of most investors feel like they might be for rent, uh, uh, financial detectives in some, sure. some respect. So how would you say your experience as a, as a detective has really helped you in your investing career? Uh, one thing is, well, one thing that I, I kind of, I still struggle with, but my job has definitely helped me with is it's just to be, to be skeptical, like, right. You don't have to, uh, take everything at face value. Like I should have been more skeptical with like 3d printing and, and things like that. You don't have to believe like the, uh, you don't have to believe the hype, you know, and you just, uh, to don't always jump to conclusions when you, when you get new information, like, like take that and, and, and try to build like. If you're trying to put a, a puzzle together, it can be a, a, an important piece to the puzzle, but like, don't, you know, finish the puzzle before you like jump to conclusions and, and things like that. Isn't that super interesting? You know, I mean, I, I, I still have to, to, to get in, get into the book itself, but when you think about the psychology of money, I mean, here you are, you're, you're a professional to ask the questions, get a better understanding, find the truth. You want to solve the case. And yet when it came to investing, at least at the beginning of your career, you know, you, you're like, wow, this, you know, this sounds great. I'm in, you know, which is totally normal. There's so many people that, that buy into that. That's why some of those things work. So what, what was that like psychologically when you really think back on those times and be like, wow, I can't believe I didn't use what I've, I'm trained for. I do for my profession. <laughs> like, like that's, that is, it's just, it's, it's funny to think about, right? Well, I think, I think all humans might have that tendency to think like, um, you can't fall for that. I I guess it's like a, it's a universal thing. So like I was a a fraud detective for a long time. And when you hear about these scams, whatever it is, like how, uh, you you know, like a a romantic scam where you meet someone on the internet and they need money and, and or like whatever it is, like somebody will call you with information. Um, you know, there's something called a grandparent scam where they call elderly people and say, Oh, your grandson was in an accident in Mexico and, and he needs money and you wire it. And when you hear about those scams online, you read an article about it, you say, Oh, that couldn't happen to me. I wouldn't fall for that. And it's very easy to say that because you're not emotionally triggered, right? So, like um, once you're emotionally triggered, though, I remember being early on as a fi- uh, fraud detective, like uh, there was a scam where somebody got a call from the IRS, right? From the from the IRS, as the caller said, and he said you owe taxes, and if you don't pay immediately, you're going to jail. And he said he was listening to this bill, and he was about to hang up. And then the caller said, "And not only will you be going to jail, but your wife will be going to jail." And, and this this gentleman, uh, the victim, was was retired, but his wife still worked. And he said all he could imagine was the mortification of his wife if she if like IRS agents rushed into where she worked. And like dragged her away in handcuffs and how she would just like die. And he said, from that point on, his only motivating thought was like, I can't let that happen to my wife. No matter what happens, I cannot let that happen to my wife. And so he fell for this game. I mean, obviously they were not from the IRS. They did, you know, the IRS does not want like 
Apple iTunes gift cards, you know, with the numbers sent over the phone and, and then you mail the cards to, to some address, you know, that, that, it, and it's easy to see that when you read an article about it, but when you're emotionally triggered, like nobody is above falling for things. Uh, and, and, and so like the same thing, right? Like I got caught up in like the, the, for 3d printing, like I got, my emotions were into it. I'm like, this is how I'm going to be rich. And you just start thinking about how rich you're going to. And once that triggers, like you're, you know, your, 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 your brain can throw up several red flags along the way. Like, does it make sense? Like economic sense that you would scan in your furniture and the cost of the material to print it out or whatever that would entail. Like, how does that make sense? Right. But like, I fell for it. Right. And, and so emotions are, are a very funny thing. And, and if your emotions are triggered, um, Anybody, anybody, anybody can be susceptible to that. A hundred percent. That's such a good point. Such a good point because it's, it's really the truth. At the end of the day, we're all human. Humans have emotions and no one's a robot, you know, despite right. maybe right. how impressive some folks are out there, but no one's a robot, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. So now we're at seven investing. Well, hold on. I want, I actually, before I get get to digging a little bit deeper into your ideal investment currently and all that kind of stuff, sure. Can I close the book on the conversation when it comes as as your with your professional career. What what are some other things that you've used from your professional career as a detective that has really helped you with your with your investing process? Uh, I would say you know like uh, w- w- one of my my biggest uh, investing heroes, I guess to put it, is Peter Lynch, right? And the thing is, it's like anybody can take away like lessons from just their everyday observations. And so you don't have to be a detective. You don't have to be a banker. You don't have to be an investment banker. You don't have to be an analyst, like analyzing stock companies. Just in your life, you're going to come across like opportunities that that you're going to see before it gets to those analysts on Wall Street and things like that. And I'm a I am a big, big believer in that, you know, and like, no matter what industry you work in, no matter like what your career is, you can see opportunities um, if you keep your eyes open. And when you start looking for those things um, before, before a lot of people um, that, that are outside of your industry and don't live your life, you know, whether that's, whether that's because of your work or whether that's because your, your wife goes shopping at a certain place or your daughter goes shopping at a certain place or your son's on this new app that just came out. Well, whatever that could be. Uh, you know, I think it can entail lots of different things for lots of different people. But I would just say, like, I, I really am a strong believer in that. Like, retail investors have this advantage that institutions don't. And seeing like these opportunities um, before before you know it, it hits like uh, you know the mainstream financial media or, or the mainstream financial world. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. I mean, that's why we. I I live in microcap land, right? Right. I mean, right. Well, yeah. Is, so you you live there. Yeah. You for real. That's your that's your world. Yeah. yeah. I mean that. Yeah. Anyway, so getting into seven investing, some of what you write about potential new investments. You know what what are what what does an ideal investment look like to you, and what's some of your criteria there? Uh. Well. So look, like I said, like I, I think. A lot of what I do is I, I now I look for economic modes. Now that can look like there, there are different types of economic modes. And all that means is like a sustainable competitive advantage, right? Um, but like, you know, like there's a Warren Buffett quote and he's like, the most important thing to me, and I'm, I'm loosely paraphrasing here, but 
Like the most important thing to me is figuring out how big a moat there is around the business. And he wants it filled with like piranhas and crocodiles. And all that means is like, so if you think about the image of a moat surrounding a castle, it could, uh, it would protect you from like, uh, you know, the moat around the castle would protect, protect you from invading armies. And economic moats just protect companies from competitors attempting to invade their markets. You know, they're the characteristics that allow companies to like charge higher prices and generate greater profits. And over time, like a moat, I also believe like a moat's always either growing or shrinking. It's very hard to find like a moat that just kind of status quo stays the same. But over time, like strengthening advantages, they just tend to shield companies and their, you know, eventually their stock prices from competitive threats and like finding companies with those sustainable competitive moats. Uh, you know, I think it's just one of the most important factors when determining like an investor's success. And, uh, and, and so that it really is something that like, uh, uh, you know, you can take that from like a very local level. Like if you're a hot dog stand vendor in a small town and sign in a, like an exclusive long-term contract with the city hall to sell food at the only park in your city, your competitive advantage would be like that physical location. So it'd be like anything from like a super small company all the way up to like the largest public companies we see in the market today, you know, but they can be like network effects, high switching costs, cost advantages, uh, you know, intangible assets. And, and, you know, you can go on and on, but just any kind of sustainable competitive advantage for a company, I believe holding, you know, finding those companies, uh, buying them at, at, at decent valuations, but even more so just dollar cost averaging into them over time and then holding them for like long periods of time. And that's really like how I'd boil down like my philosophy. So do you, do you have any anecdotes or examples that, you know, really demonstrated this is, this is why I'm focused here? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, like, so take, uh, take like network effects, right? It's like, so what I said, like, was one of the, uh, like economic modes. I think they can be really hard to find like a real example of network effects, but when you do, like, it can be like really powerful. Look at at and and like at the turn of the last century in the early 1900s, right? And like there's this shareholder letter they had uh, or like a, it was almost like this pamphlet to to convince more people to become shareholders. And they were like, you know, uh, you, you know, a telephone without anything on the other end of the line. It's just this it's just this toy. It's useless. It's like one of the most useless things in the world. If you have a telephone that's not connected to any other phones, there is no value to it. And yet if you add one other phone, uh, you know, to it, it, it uh, now it has some value, but a very limited value. Now, if you have like millions of connections to that phone, um, now you have something with real value. Now you can talk to basically anyone in the world. And so like, I think that was like one of the first times, like, uh, you know, they didn't call it network effects back then, but I think that was a great description of a, a, a network effect. Um, you know, the, the AT&T they were describing, like that was, it, it was just like, as um you know, that's the phenomenon by which the, like the value of that service increased with each additional user. So you went from, you know, one phone useless, 10 phones, limited value, a hundred phones, more value. And then you could just keep going on and on and on. And each additional user that came on, the greater the value for that whole network effect. Um, so like, I, I think that's like a, a historical example, but one, you know, you can take that to today. Like, uh, like Google actually has this, like what I call like a data network effect. Like, so Google's search engine improves as users conduct more searches and as websites optimize themselves to like, to like figure prominently in Google search results, right? Like that's SEO. We have this whole industry that's all about like 
100% dedicated to like showing up on Google search results. And so moreover, like Google personalizes those search results. So they make it like more likely that users use Google the next time they conduct an online search because it's really easy to find what you're looking for. And the more that Google learns about its users through their search queries, you know, the better its targeting ability becomes. And as it improves, the more likely it is that it will grow market share over its competitors. And that gives it even more data to improve its results. So uh, like, uh, you know, like if you just like as for network effects, right, which is one of those network, one of those uh, examples of economic modes, like, but I think that's like, you know, like a, a great historical example and one that I think, you know, a lot of people can grasp like a telephone, but like you can go that today and just see like, okay, Google has more people using it as a service than any other search engine. And, and because of that, it's, it's thinking of a competitor to overtaking it. They'll never have that data that Google has. So Google's advantage just grows over time, the, you know, as it maintains its market share lead. Absolutely. And hey, Matthew, real quick, are you currently a shareholder in AT&T or Google? Uh, not ATD, but yes, Alphabet. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So you, in, in your bio, you mentioned how you, uh, you spend most of your time covering fintech and payment sector. So is this, are, are, is this where you see that there is the, the best uh, economic moats that, that are out there right now? Sustainable economic moats? Um, you know, probably overall, um, like I considered myself a generalist, like, like I, I started though, I started though, like in, in that industry and look, I mean, I got lucky, I was blessed, but like, you know, like I think several times, like Motley Fool assigned me to like, you know, when I started writing like to payment and, and like financial services and, and, you know, six, five, six years ago, that was like a great place to be. Right. And I think about all the time, like if they said, well, we really need you to learn like energy. Or, or, or something like that, utilities, like, you know, would I be in the same place I am today? And, and you know, uh, so I got really lucky, like, like being there. Um, I think there are great, though, like some great companies in that sector uh, from, from MasterCard and Visa. I own MasterCard, not Visa. From PayPal and Square, I own both of those. Uh, you know, I think like there, there's, and there's some new companies coming up. And I will say now it's like almost being flooded with these new companies, I think you have to be like more discerning, uh, but like there, there, there are some great companies in, in that space. I was going to say FinTech right now is probably, I mean, there's so many private companies that are raising, you know, series A, series B, the, you know, the um, venture capital that has flooded into that market is, is incredible. Uh, it, it really is. And it, it does like, it's something you just have to watch for. There are like now like uh, dozens of companies trying to solve every financial problem. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's good. It, it'll be interesting to see like which ones emerge from that space in our winners. But I think you, you do, uh, there are some examples I think of like companies that have like a huge lead in, in becoming a, a winner in some of those categories. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I won't ask you which, which ones, but I mean, maybe without naming, you know, the companies that you you're thinking in, in that space, you know, which, what do you think is the main problems in fintech that you think are close to kind of being solved based on some of the what, you know, some of these companies out there that uh, have some good tech or interesting new ways in which to solve those problems? Um, well, so like first, you can still say like the world, when you look at the global population, it's still underbanked, right? Like there are huge numbers. I, I don't have them in front of me, but there's huge numbers of people uh, in emerging markets that don't have any kind of banking service. Um, you know, banks perform in a very important function in society, um, you know, like, uh, you know, in the U.S. where they're kind of taken for granted, 
we, we, we rail against their fees and things like that. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but like, uh, you know, without banks, you don't have the money, you don't have the means to like, to save money and to, you know, to get, to get loans, to, to start businesses and things like that. And without those kinds of functions, like, I think it's very hard for, uh, an economy to, to, to thrive. And so you look at like a lot of emerging economies, they are still like huge unbanked populations. You look at even the U S and it's not so much that it's unbanked, but a lot of, a lot of, uh, consumers are still underbanked where they don't have access to all the financial services that like, um, like that the middle class and above enjoy. Right. So I, I mean, that's a huge problem. Um, I, I think like, you know, and th there's, I think like there are digital apps moving into that space and trying to democratize a lot of these services um, that like where you don't necessarily have to go to like an, an actual bank to have like most functions of a traditional bank account now. Um, but, but like around the world, it, it's still, that's still a huge problem. Moving money around the world is still a very costly endeavor, especially from country to country, right? Um, th there's huge fees. I mean, there's businesses uh, like Western Union. I, I don't own shares, but like, uh, you know, to move money around the world, they have a network effect where, uh, you know, they have locations all over. And now there's ways to, and they would charge like hefty fees to do that. And now there's like digital services that are trying to do that for uh, a cheaper price so that, you know, if you're uh if you come from an emerging economy to work in the U S and to send money back home to your family or something like that, like that always came with hefty fees. Like if you can do it digitally for cheaper, like then, you know, that's great, but there, there are still like, yeah, lots of problems though in the financial world, lots of friction. hundred percent. And I, I think you hit on probably the number one um, problem that I think that I think there are, there's quite a few folks out there that are, that are working towards trying to solve. So when you're, let's talk about your research process a little bit. Um, everybody comes at it differently. Um, you know, some folks, I, I listen, again, I live in microcap land. So for the most part, everyone likes to, at the very least, uh, have maybe one conversation with management or hear their presentation. You know, you, it sounds like you look, you look all, it doesn't matter the market cap, you look wherever um, to find, to find value and, and quality ideas. So what are, what are some of the things that you look for? Where, where do you go and get your information? Do you like talking to management? You know, tell me a little bit uh, about your process. Um, yeah. So I would say I, I love, I love reading transcripts. I love reading 10 Ks. Um, I think you have to do all that, but I love like those a lot of times you find some real gems in like those uh, analyst conferences, like where, you know, they're interviewing, uh, you know, again, like I think your world is probably a little different than my, I mean, my two largest holdings, right. Are Amazon and Alphabet. So, so to say like, you're probably on the more, not to say I don't own any micro caps uh, and I don't look there, but like, I, um, I actually think it's, it can be a more difficult, but more rewarding space. Um, but like, uh, but like, you know, can I call, Amazon's management up or, or, or talk to them. No, I, I haven't had luck with that. Um, but like listening to these analyst conferences where, you know, uh, they're interviewing these key management figures from the companies and things like that. I think oftentimes you can find gems from them, obviously going through, uh, you know, their, their results, their 10 Qs and 10 Ks, things like that. Um, but I, I love reading transcripts. I love talking to other investors. And one thing that's like was not available uh, even 10 years ago, uh, that's available now. And that's incredible. It's just like leveraging my, my Twitter network. Um, it's been like an absolute goldmine, but like, so like recently, like, uh, with, with, uh, I was about to say Facebook, but, but meta, meta, meta platforms or whatever they're calling themselves now, like, um, 
they, uh, you know, there's lots of changes going on with them, right? Not only are they spending more on the Oculus, but they have competition from TikTok. You have the IDFA changes to like how they, that affects like Facebook's like ability to target the consumers and things like that. And so all those things together, like I was really wondering about these, like how much does like those changes that Apple's doing on the iOS, like how much does that really affect Facebook's advertising? And through Twitter, I was able to just reach out and had like, uh, three awesome conversations with people who manage like tens of millions of dollars on social media advertising and just talk to them. Like, how has this changed what, what you do? And like, uh, and again, like even 10, you know, you know, I'm just talking about like me, but like 10 years ago, that basically did not exist where you could just reach out. A guy like me could reach out and like, you know, I, I didn't have to pay for a, a high paid service that hedge funds can afford and hire experts to come in and talk and you pay for that access. I just leveraged my Twitter network, which was just incredible. And to be able to have those conversations, things like that, just one, that's just one example. But like, um, again, like going back to like, you know, it's a puzzle, right? And so like, you know, 10 Ks and, and transcripts, those are a lot of pieces, but they're not all the pieces and talking to like people in the industry. That's another, you know, those are a lot of pieces. And I just think you have to like put the puzzle together. And like the more pieces you can put on, the clearer you can see the picture. And you'll never have all the pieces. So I actually, I, I, I'm, I'm making this analogy on the fly, but I kind of like this. I, you know, you'll never have all the pieces, but the more pieces you have the, that you can pull from different sources, the, the clearer the picture you can see and what the puzzle is supposed to be. Got it. And, you know, you, listen, you work for you work for a company that's that has a lot of very similar, a lot of similarities to Motley Fool, you know, putting out picks, you know, people paying to subscribe, get some of the picks and stuff. Uh, are you invested in all the, the picks that they make or are, are is it just based on on your research that you're seeing out there and, and what you know to potentially be quality ideas? So as a as a business entity, someone investing, invest in all the recommendations that are made. Awesome. I am personally invested in all the recommendations I have made. Awesome. Um, and but Sorry, I'm a big, big fan of that model. I think that's the only way to do it. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. And uh, but I can't say like I I've invested in several of the other advisors' recommendations, but not but not all. As long as you're investing in the in the, uh, the ones you make, uh, that that's what I'm I'm like. That that's good. But but so on that question too, you know, because you probably have, how often do you have to make a, a recommendation or, or put put one out? Like, uh, we recommend, like, I make one recommendation a month. One a month. Okay. And then several, don't get me, I mean, several of them are re-recommendations. So, okay. Uh, that, that that was actually where I was right. going with it's that. Not because, like a new, right. Several of them are, are re-recommendations. And that's where I was going to go with that because I was curious, you know, because you have, that's part of the model and that's, that's how you do it. You know, how big is your portfolio or do you like to be more diversified? Are you more a fan of concentration? And then because of that, I, that you just kind of answered my question because you said your two things are wide economic modes and hold for a long time. I would assume that probably some of those recs are, are re-recs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, portfolio allocation, um, you know, it probably just as important like investor returns as like probably actual stock picking. Um, and, and it probably doesn't get it the attention it deserves. And, and that goes for me too. Um, but like um, for a long time, like especially when I started, my portfolio was very haphazardly like constructed. Um, sometimes I'd enter like a position all at once and other times I'd slowly ease into it uh, by like dollar cost averaging. Um, like over time, um, primarily through learning by mistake and discovering just like my own comfort levels. Uh, like, I, I think I've kind of like, I have three principles, which I build my personal portfolio by one is by like, I move slowly. 
Like I'm never in a rush to build a position anymore. So I just buy a little at a time. And so like that first bite, like I was talking about like the puzzle pieces and everything, the first bite can be quick. If, if somebody, if, if uh, Bobby, if you, if you came to me and said, I love this micro cap, I really like it. And I looked into it and I really liked what I saw. I might buy a small piece right away before I even like put in a lot of pieces on the puzzle. Um, but like I start small, but if the thesis holds and as my confidence grows with my knowledge, I like, I'll just add over time. And if not, like I am a very long-term buy and hold investor, but like for that first initial bite, like if I made it quick, like I, I can be quick to sell that too. Um, but like, um, but I just like building a, a, a little over time. I personally think of it as time diversification. Um, and the, so the second thing is like, I like make stocks like earn their position. So to become a significant position in my portfolio and in my head, like I call that anything over 5%, the stock has to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, like I'm not going to keep allocating to one position up until it's like 20%. Now, if a stock, like if I allocate like 5% to it and it grows and it does really well and it grows to 20%, um, like I'm, I'm more comfortable with that, but I don't want to like keep allocating to a stock, especially once it reaches over like 5%. Um, so it's, that's especially true for my largest positions. Like I'll keep buying to a point. Um, uh, but eventually like I, I, you know, the positions they need to earn their keep. And then third, like um, my, my largest positions, especially by market costs, are those that I believe won't lose a lot of money rather than the ones that I think could gain the most. Um, so for example, Shopify, which I own a position and it's come down a lot. It's come down a lot, but it's still up significantly from where I like initially bought it several years ago. Um, you know, um, that, that grew so much that I started, I, I trimmed it a little bit. Not not at the top. I trimmed it a little too early, and then I let it run, and now it's come down a lot. But like, um, like you know, when it, when it got to like really really lofty valuations, where I thought like drawdowns might be likely, I, I might trim a little, like you know, as it goes up. And like now, like you know, like a, after it comes down, you know, I might look at it again. I might decide to add more. Um, I, I haven't done that with Shopify, but like just as an as an example. But like basically, so like I just move slowly. Um, like, you know, I can just make stocks earn like really large positions, allocations. And, um, like I, I, I tend to just myself, my personality, like I, I tend to like really emphasize the ones that I believe like, um, just won't go down a lot. Like I'd rather have alphabet in a very large position than, uh, like Shopify, even though I believe like Shopify has more upside, but I think like alphabet has less downside. So just naturally, like that's how I've constructed my portfolio. At any given time, I, I could have 30 positions, uh, give or take five positions. But, it, it, you know, like uh, when, once I start hitting like, uh, you know, once I start hitting like the mid 30s, I, I really start thinking, OK, like I have a lot of these small positions, like maybe I don't have so much confidence in them and I'd rather add to like positions with higher confidence. But I, I'm not super concentrated either. Like I know some people who do it where they have like eight positions or five positions. I'm not like that. I'm not built for that. Um I, I just, uh, it's just not for me. If I did that, I'd be super conservative. And like, I have found like being like more aggressive, taking on a little more risk has helped my returns. But if I had to like really narrow it down to like five companies, just the way I built, like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't like to go back in time. Like we already brought up Shopify, which again, I own a position. When, when I started adding that and it was like, I don't know, 50 or 60 bucks was probably my first buy. Uh, I, I would have, if I had to make that like a, a five to 10% position right away. Like I never would have bought it, right? Like I'm just too, too cowardly, but can I buy a little at a time? Sure. 
So I bought, you know, just a, a little bite and I was comfortable with that. And as I learned more and as I grew comfortable with it, and even as the stock price went up, like, I think that's a, um, a large hang up. A lot of people have, they don't want to add to a position as it goes up. It feels good to say like Shopify is a 10 bagger for me or a 20 bagger or whatever it is. Right. Um, it, it feels really good to say that. <laughs> and if you add up, you know, it's not right. You can say my initial position was that, but like, you know, now that I've added to it at $100 and $200 or $400 or $700 or such, like, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, it's not this huge multi-bagger anymore. It's, you know, um, so uh, I, I think a lot of people have that hang up. Like I don't like, in fact, I really like, um, I believe it was Peter Lynch, but like, you know, like, um, you know, water your flowers and cut your weeds. Don't. And a lot of people do it reverse. Like when a stock goes down, they want to like water the weeds and cut the, to, and cut the flowers to do it. You know, don't do that. I really believe in, in adding to your winners. Um, and, 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 uh, and so that's how I think about portfolios. Got it. So then how do you, but then how do you think about um, selling? You know, you, you said you, you, you know, you had thirties, mid thirties, the number of stocks in your portfolio potentially at any given time, you know, how, how do you evaluate which ones? Like, eh, I don't know about this one. Maybe I want to add, you know, what, what goes through your mind when it comes to your selling process? Okay. So it's a little nuanced, but like, again, like if it's a small, really small position, like if you came to me again, same example, if you came to me and said, Matt, I love this micro cap blah, 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 this why, and I look at it really quick and I'm like, wow, this sounds really good. I might just buy a little bite within like four hours. And I'm talking, but I'm talking about like a small bite. I want to track it. I want to learn more. So I'm going to buy a little now. Um, but as I learn more about it, um, I might find out like, oh, but they had this competitor or uh, Shopify is getting to that space or Stripe or what, whatever. I, and like, I don't think they have a competitive advantage against a, a bigger threat like that. And I don't like it anymore. I could sell that like, you know, a day later. Like, I, I don't consider that like a, a quote unquote real position. Um, once, once I do that, once it gets past that initial phase and I've been adding to a stock, um, you know, you might see me on, on Twitter, like there's a, a subset movement, like that's hashtag never sell, right? Which is like buy just great companies and you never sell them. And that is the preferred choice. Like, I mean, like to quote Warren Buffett, you know, like our holding time, our preferred holding time is forever. Uh, that is definitely the preference. Um, look, in, in reality, like if when you had a, a thesis for, for a stock, like we talked about Alphabet and how they have a data network effect. And because more people use it, that advantage just grows over time because they get more and more data. And when people and, and they use that to like feed better search results, that's an incredible network effect. If something were to happen, like somebody just built this magical AI computer that could do better search results than Alphabet then all of a sudden you have this broken thesis and it was just rapidly, this new competitor was just rapidly taking market share. Um, it might be time to sell Alphabet. So you, you have to have a thesis. You have to know why you're holding a stock, why you believe it has a competitive advantage. And if that competitive advantage disappears, uh, you, you know there has to be a time to sell. Now, that being said, <clears throat> again, <laughs> there's a lot of nuance here. Uh, the never sell philosophy of long-term, really long-term buy and hold, every company, Every company ever is going to have those moments that look bad. And one thing that really helped me early on, I'd look at stock price charts, really, really long-term stock price charts and pick any company that's done well over 50 years or longer. Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, uh, you know, IBM until the last decade, you know, companies that just excelled for a super long time. You could look at that stock chart 
And when you zoomed out, you could see like, you know, the little zigs up and downs and things like that. And if you zoomed in, that's like a, that could be like a five-year period. And so you're like, look, I, I could have bought, uh, I'm making it up, but like I could have bought Johnson & Johnson in, in 1972 and it, and it didn't, you know, then it dipped, you know, and it didn't get above that price until like 1977. Now in the long term, that means nothing. That's just a little zag on his chart and it's just continued to compound since then. But if you were living in that time, if you bought it in 1972, like that, that would have seemed like eternity. I bought this stock and for five years, it hasn't even reached its like my initial cost basis yet. Um, and every stock's going to go through that. Look at Chipotle. I don't own shares in Johnson Johnson or Chipotle, but like when they went through their, uh, like their whole food poisoning thing, right. Uh, where, where people are getting sick. Um, you know, David Gardner, one of the co-founders at Motley Fool used to say like, you know, look long-term and, and like when a company goes through hard times, are these storm clouds you can see through? Like, you know, I, I live in South Florida and like thunderstorms can come like really quick in the afternoon and then they're gone and they were ferocious for 30 minutes, but they're gone. Like, is it like a thunderstorm like that? Or is it like a hurricane where you can't see any light on the horizon? And like Chipotle, like as bad as it was for two, three years for those shareholders, I believe like those were storm clouds you could see through. And it probably gave you a great opportunity to add to that company during that time. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you just looked historically at the, the restaurant chains that had gone through moments like that before, like they bounced back. It took time, but they always bounced back. And like through it all, Chipotle probably became uh, stronger. They got new management that was there probably that are, that is probably better suited for a more mature business like Chipotle is now. Uh, they got uh, better food practices, you know, that they implemented so that these kinds of things would be less likely to happen in the future. And um, it's probably a stronger company. And for two years, was that like the death of Chipotle? And I think pretty resoundingly, the answer was always no. You just, it was just kind of sucked holding for, for two years. And so when companies do go through those periods, and we can talk about some now, I mean, some are, <laughs> we were talking about like some quote unquote COVID winners and they've made round trips, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think some of them are like these companies that like uh, probably aren't coming back and, and some are. And, uh, you know, it's really important to look at the hard times the company's going through and saying, is this like a, a long-term thesis changing problem or is this like a, a shorter term? And when I say short term, like, I, again, I can be talking about like a year or two, three years, or is this like a thesis changing problem? And if yes. it's a thesis changing problem, it is time to sell. And if you're not sure, it might be time to sell. But like when you can see through it, and I think Chipotle is just like a great recent example that, that everybody really knows, like, you know, where, okay, th this business is not going to die. People loved this restaurant before. The, all those headlines scared people away. And I'm not even saying deservedly so, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I personally ate a Chipotle for like a, a good year or so after that happened. Um, uh, like, can it rebound? And I think the answer was always resoundingly yes. So, um, so I just think through all that, like, uh, you know, having that long-term ne hashtag never sell philosophy, of course, there's times to sell. Of course, uh, thesis can be broken. You can just be wrong. You can just be wrong about a company. I thought I had a moat. It didn't. Um, and this new competitive threat came in and I was totally wrong. You could be wrong. The thesis could change. The thesis can break. A disruptor threat could have entered the industry, then it is time to sell. But like having that mentality and and almost like prove to me that the thesis broke, you know, like don't you can't you can't sell it the first time of trouble.
And that's by far the hardest part in my experience. And I think every investor's experience when it comes to investing is being able to tell the difference between a broken thesis and just, all right, food poisoning, right? Just to use a Chipotle example. Yeah, yeah. You no, know? it's gut-wrenching. Gut-wrenching. It can be completely gut-wrenching at times to see that. Like, um, you know, I talked about, <laughs> you can talk about, like, I mean, some are, Excuse me. Some some companies are going through this like right now, right from the pandemic. Like we can talk about like Shopify, PayPal, which I own. Uh, you know, but I, I believe Zoom, these are I buy one like this. I say Zoom. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zoom. Like, like are are and are these companies going to come back or are they really broken? And I, you know, you can go through them like on a case by case basis. But like I think there's a lot of them that like um, th- that are not broken. And that they're they're down now, but it's gut wrenching to go through it. Gut wrenching. So, you talked about an, one one investing experience that really changed your career, and uh, you know when you first got into it with the um, with three D printing and stuff. But what what was, was there another experience that that really changed your career and and really kind of set you on the path, or the investing path that you're on today? Yeah. So early on, like after I had gone through all the three D printing and all those like, like I, I just like rapidly went through like a whole bunch of stupid phases. Um, uh, like I bought MasterCard at some point and uh, I bought it. On a, <laughs> I bought it for a lot of reasons, but like, uh, <clears throat> and it went, it went down right away. Um, and, and I didn't, you know, obviously after all these experiences of doing it wrong, I was like, here we go again. Right. Like, here we go again. <laughs> and then like a few quarter. Uh, I managed to hold though, and a few quarters went by. And like at this time, like my portfolio was very haphazard. I had like turnaround stories and and value stocks and growth stocks and all these different things. Again, I really didn't know what I was doing, but like I just noticed like the the really quality companies, like over time, like they always came back, and and like the other ones, like they either wouldn't or I wasn't sure or a whole host of reasons. But like at, at some point, I just had like an epiphany, just like. And the devil's in the details here, but like, just, just buy the best companies, you know? And, 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 you know, this is like five or six years ago now, but like, it was like buy Amazon, buy Alphabet, buy, you know, MasterCard, just really great companies. And again, it, it kind of took me a while to really crystallize that. But like, I really, to me, a great company is one that has an economic moat, a competitive advantage against other companies. And there's a reason why, like when Microsoft, Poland Capital is a money management group I really like. And uh, they have share a very similar philosophy to mine, long-term economic modes. And they say, uh, like, you look for proven economic modes by looking for moat attacks. So, like, when a company has, like, uh, uh, like uh, when a company tries to enter an industry and they fail, and I'm not talking about like a, maybe a startup or something, but like when a when a when you can look at like, okay, so we're talking about like Google search and why they have this advantage. Microsoft, one of the best tech companies in the world. I mean, they, they, there's no question, just a, a great company. They wanted to enter search. So they they made Bing. And Bing is a, you know, like if anybody has the pockets to like fund a competitor, if anybody has the 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 technical know-how, uh, you know, the the resources to put behind a competitive search engine, you would say, okay, Microsoft is is a great company to do this, right? And so Bing entered the market and it stayed in the market and it's done absolutely basically zilch against Alphabet search. And so you see that kind of moat attack 
You're like, okay, that is, so Poland Capital says, look for those mode attacks. And that's like proof, like that company has an economic moat. And so, uh, you know, so you look for examples like that, like, okay, like, you know, Microsoft, I, I think that's a, like one of the best examples, but like when, when Google plus tried to like go into like the Facebook territory, right. And they couldn't, uh, you know, things like that, like, uh, like, you can see more niche use cases of social media, but there's no universal platform that can really approach like either Facebook or Instagram, just things like that. When you see like a, an example of like, oh man, Amazon's going to get into this industry and they Shopify did fine, you know, and, and Shopify still thrives. There's that's like, to me, that's a very key example. Like, so you look for these mode attacks as proof, but you want, you know, when, when you see that you can say like, okay, here's proof that this company has an economic moat. And so again, go, it went down to the epiphany of buy the best companies. What are the best companies? And it took me a while to crystallize it, but I really, to me, it's just companies with economic moats. I love it. So, I, you know, usually at this point, I always ask, you know, advice for new investors, but this is something that's been coming up quite a bit uh, in the last two years. And that's the idea that, um, you know, everything is just so expensive. So I'm going to, I want to wait for things to kind of, you know, go down a little bit or whatever. But when we're talking about looking at good companies and I'm a, I'm in very much agreement with that as just a base thesis for anybody, if, especially if you're just getting into investing, just like, just buy a basket of the best ones. Like you're probably going to be okay and hold it for a long time. But how do you, what, what do you say to folks that are like, okay, I hear you on MasterCard, Alphabet, and by the way, full disclosure, I don't own any of these, but I hear you on all this, but I want to wait for it to go down a bit for me to then buy in and do it. You know what? Because that's really what new investors have been asking. At least they ask me that more so than literally even what is a micro cap. So how, how do you respond to those questions? Um, so like, first I would just tell them like, you know, investing doesn't have to be all or nothing. And a lot of times we say like, you either have to index or you have to like buy, you know, individual stocks or something like that. Uh, if you're starting off, start by indexing part of your portfolio. And I, I you know, look, I, I work at a, a stock recommendation newsletter and uh, I believe you can outperform the market by choosing individual stocks, but you don't have to put a hundred percent of your money right now into like some stocks that you read about on a newsletter, even mine, even seven investing, like put half of your portfolio or whatever you feel comfortable with, but put it, you know, put it into the S and P 500 and start dollar cost averaging into that. And if you're putting like, you know, round using, just using round numbers, if you're putting a thousand dollars into the market, use 500 to buy a stock you want to own and use 500 to put in the S and P 500 and, and just start doing it like that. Um, like the other thing I would tell people like buy, buy what you know, you know, you don't have to buy like, uh, or, or, or what you're passionate about or what like speaks to you, you know, what, what, you know, we offer recommendations each month out of those recommendations. Does any of them sing to you? You know, like, does any like, Oh, that resonates with me. I get why this company could do really well. You know uh, if you don't want to buy a biotech stock because you don't understand it, then, then don't, then don't, you know, if, if you don't want to buy like, um, like a, a bank or financial service, I recommend because that's that's boring to you. Then then don't then don't buy, but you know stick with like what you love as a consumer. So like if that's Disney, I own shares. You know they're in my my kids, uh, you know accounts 
for college savings and, and things like that. If you're a Disney shareholder, like that's a, a great stock to start with. It's a great stock to start with for kids, right? Because like there, there's almost almost certainly your kids will love some some part of Disney, whether that's Marvel or Star Wars or Princesses or going to the parks or ESPN or, or whatever it is. Uh, you know, like uh, if you're in an industry and like you're like, oh, this company is really good in my industry or they sell software that we use at work or so I get it. You know, so when you kind of get that like, uh, like that visceral understanding of a company, like, like start there, start with what, you know, like there was a, a coworker of mine, uh, she, and she wanted to get started investing and she, she loves Lululemon, like, you know, yoga clothes and athletic wear. And she spends a lot of money there Buy that, you know, I like buy, buy some of that, you know, to make you interested in it. I do not own shares uh, of that one, but like, you know, there's, there's ways to like, I, I really like that, that Peter Lynch, like model of, buy what you know, you know, buy what you understand or buy what like, <clears throat> even if you, if you don't work in the industry, but you really love to geek out on science. So maybe you like that biotech stuff, you know? So like, but just buy what, what, what resonates with you. And then it doesn't have to be all stock, but you can put, put some in the S and P 500, especially at first, at least until you get more comfortable with, uh, with, with, with buying like more individual picks. And the other thing is know your risk profile. If you don't, if you're like, I cannot handle stocks going down 50% and you have to really know yourself because it's easy to say, oh, I could handle it when stocks are going up, but it's going to happen. If you can't handle that, like, a, a, you know, look at risk profiles for stocks, you know, like we, we recommend a lot of like high risk, high reward stocks that are, could do really well or could not do really well. We also recommend a lot of like low risk stocks, you know, like, I mean, I don't own Berkshire Hathaway, but it's a great example of this stock. Like the upside on it is it's not going to be a, you know, it's not going up hundred percent this year, right? Like it's just, it's not, but it's, it's also not, it's probably also not dropping 50% this year. Right. So know your own risk profile and what you, you know, what, what you can handle as far as volatility goes, if you can't handle large drops, um, one, maybe individual stock investing is not for you. Uh, because if you, no matter what you do, if you sell at the bottom, like you're going to lose, you could pick the best stocks in the world, but if you sell at the bottom when, when they fall to 20%, 30% and they will, they absolutely will. Like you're, you're not going to do well on investing. So know your risk profile and, and buy what you like. And it doesn't have to be all binary. You can put, especially when you're starting off, put some money in the index. Very good. All right, Matthew, I think that's a great place to end it. So with that, where can our audience go and find more information about you, 7investing, as well as follow you on social media? Yeah, well, 7investing.com is our service. I would love for you to check it out. And uh, like, if you're interested in finding out more, I am on Twitter way too much. I'm on Twitter pretty much all the time. And you can find me at Matt underscore Cochran7 um, on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next chat. Thanks a lot, Bobby. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.